I love a, a full worship service when you hear the people of God praising God. Well, just imagine the voices emanating thousands upon millions of angels affirming the holiness of God, but not just the angels, but also the redeemed. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We began a look at heaven last week as we moved into chapter 4 of our study of the Revelation. I hope you had an opportunity to listen to it. If not, you can always go back and listen again using our Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or by visiting our website at searchthescriptures.org. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy addresses the seven lamps of fire mentioned in verse 5. Having already noted similar references in Isaiah, today he looks at the fourth chapter of the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, who makes a similar reference. What do you see, the angel asked Zechariah, what do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, and its bowls on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which were on top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to him, do you not know what these are? And he said, no, my Lord. Then the angel responds and he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by my power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That is the promise that God's seven lamps would not only function through Messiah, but now today is functioning through the church. And there is an untold of reservoir of power as seen by the two olive trees habitually feeding these seven lambs. God will meet you. God will empower you. But here is a picture of the Spirit of God here in Revelation 4 before the throne. This is a, a Trinitarian picture as we're going to see before we're done with these two chapters of Father, Son, and Spirit. The seven spirits of God. We don't believe in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven spirits. We believe there is one Holy Spirit, but there are seven expressions or attributes that are underscored. And we're going to see him appear over and over and over again some 14 times here in the book of Revelation. Now remember, this is a scene of judgment, of fire and lightning, and God is about ready to unleash his wrath upon the earth. Right now, the Spirit's ministry is in grace as He is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But there's coming a time when He will deal like the other members of the Godhead with people in wrath. And at the great white throne judgment, the Bible says, every mouth will be shut. There'll be no excuses when all the lost people of all time are arraigned before the living God. Every word, every deed, every thought, every act will be brought before the living God and probably brought to the forefront of people's minds by the Spirit of God, and they will see that they are worthy of judgment. There'll be no bravado on that day. You know, I love Winston Churchill as a leader, and I sure hope he repented. But in his biography that I read years ago, I underscored it. He said, I am, when he was asked if he was ready to meet God, he said, I am ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. 
There'll be no swagger before this throne. Every mouth will be shut. And the Spirit of God in judgment will not be offering a tongue of fire to communicate because there'll be no evangelism and no second chances in heaven. He will not be coming like an illuminating warm torch or like the flutter of a dove. He will be coming in judgment with the Father and the Son. And so he speaks of the seven spirits of God who are present. Notice also the four living creatures of praise are present. The four living creatures of praise are here as well. In verse 6, and before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Now, this is another one of those places where human vocabulary just seems inadequate. And so he's trying to describe the, the shimmering floor in this awesome courtroom, this throne room of God. A good architect will often put a uh, reflecting pond in, in front of one of his works of art in order to magnify and double the beauty by reflecting it during the day. Well, before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now, the old King James has four beasts, and that was a good translation for the 17th century, but not today. Uh, the New King James, like the NASB, says four living creatures. It's the word zoar. It refers to a living creature, not some beast like Godzilla. And certainly it's not some beast like the Antichrist who's called the beast, which is an entirely different Greek word. These are four living creatures. And you will find these four living creatures described also by the prophet Ezekiel, where they are called cherubim. Cherubim, like other angels who, for instance, can take on human form. The Bible says you can entertain an angel and not know it. Cherubim apparently can also change their form and the way they look. And they are a high class of angels. Ephesians 6 says that, and you would expect it, God being a God of order, that angels are organized. Even fallen angels are organized. They're organized by rank and file. Lucifer was once a cherubim. He was once one of these angels in this high rank, the anointed cherub. Cherub is the singular, cherubim is uh, the dual or the plural, depending on how it's uh, used in the original. But these are not little cupids with wings, little babies. Angels don't have angel babies with one another. We'll be like angels in heaven. The Bible says we won't procreate. God made a fixed number of angels never to create anymore. But these angels, these four living creatures, are real angelic beings, and they are awe-inspiring, and the way God created them communicates a message that you don't want to miss. Let me read verse 7 first. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, or some of your translations say an ox. You could render it either way. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Now put out in the margin next to this, Ezekiel 1, 10 and 11, listen to this. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spreading out above and below and so on. So both the prophet Ezekiel and the Apostle John described the fourfold faces of these cherubim, the lion, the ox, the eagle, and the man. 
Now, I told you that when we began the book that one of the reasons people have difficulty understanding the revelation is, number one, they don't understand the unconditional promises that God made to the people of Israel, that He's not done with them, but largely because they don't know the Old Testament. And out of the 404 verses in the Revelation, 300 are direct allusions to the Old Testament. The challenge is he never says Isaiah said or Moses wrote or King David said. No, it's just stated some imagery from one of the 39 books of the Old Testament. And it's beautifully put together, and it's really helpful because in the Old Testament, so many of the prophecies, especially in relation to the second coming, are spread out all over those 39 books. But what happens is God pulls them all together in the Revelation. You begin to see the chronology of those prophecies. And so before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass. Let me read verses 6 and 7 together. Like crystal, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now, I'll detail it later on, but for now, let me just say that the eyes symbolize discernment and knowledge. We're going to study this in more detail, so we'll save it or we'll never finish this sermon. Verse 7, the first creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third like a man, and the fourth like a flying eagle. Now, I wrote a little booklet, How to Prove the Bible is True. I don't make any money on it, so I'm not here to sell books. But I go through five divine proofs on why we can say the Bible is the only book God wrote, why he didn't inspire the Quran or the Vedas or the Upanishads or the Book of Mormon or any other writing you can think of. God only wrote one book. And one of the ways that we know that the Bible is uniquely God-authored is fulfilled prophecy because only God knows the future. And so as you read of this description, it is not by accident that it is here because it is a picture of God working behind the scenes. Do you remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? He said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, the law being the first five books, the prophets, a description of the rest of the Bible. Don't think I came to abolish the Old Testament. I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, it's yod. Yod is like an apostrophe in English. It's the smallest of the Hebrew letters. Not the smallest letter or stroke. Stroke is a stroke of the pen that will distinguish different Hebrew letters, like the letter O in English, the printed letter. The letter Q has a stroke that distinguishes the two. Jesus is saying not the smallest letter, not the smallest stroke of a pen will pass away until it is all fulfilled. Now, the book of Numbers is a book about numbers. And when you read the book of Numbers, you think, why all these numbers? Why does God bother to write all these numbers down? Now, if you remember, after Moses received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, uh, God gave him specific instructions not only to number the people, but also to build a tabernacle. And a tabernacle was a place of worship. Here's a picture of one that we saw when we're in Israel. It's made to scale. Uh, some Messianic Jews, some Jews who believe Jesus, Yeshua is Lord, built the tabernacle, and they used it as a teaching tool. Rabbis came down from Jerusalem, and they measured every square inch of it, and they wanted to make sure that it was done to the specs that God gave in the Bible, and of course, it passed their inspection. 
But what God did is he used this as a foreshadowing of what God was going to do with Christ. Some of our children studied the tabernacle in one of our vacation Bible schools. We saw how even the furniture in the tabernacle was placed in the shape of a cross and not by accident. Well, the tabernacle, if you remember in the Torah, was placed in the center of the camp. And the 12 tribes of Israel would camp around the tabernacle. Now, don't get confused because when you think about the 12 tribes, there's a baker's dozen. There's really 13. You say, help me, Pastor. Well, remember, Jacob had 12 sons. And one of those sons, Joseph, was sold into slavery, became the prime minister of Egypt. And when he was down there in Egypt and a great famine came upon the land, uh, in the interim, he got married to a lady by the name of Asenath. Someone asked me recently, is it true that there are black Jewish people? I said, of course there are. How do you get black Jewish people? <laughs> Joseph married a believing Egyptian by the name of Asenath, and he had two sons. And those two sons were later adopted by Jacob when he comes down with the other boys, and they become part of the 12 tribes. So you have the Levites, and God said this. They were in the center. You can read it in Numbers 1 and 2. Read those two chapters this afternoon. They camped immediately around the tabernacle. And then God said this in Numbers 2-2. The sons of Israel shall camp each by his own standard, his own banner, with the banners of their father's household. And they shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. So there's four groups, each group under one banner, three tribes in each group. Four times three is 12. Now, the Talmud is written in the second century AD. For years, for centuries, there was what the Jews called oral tradition. And in the second century AD, they decided to write it all down. And in the Talmud, they describe what the four banners are. The four faces of these living creatures that Ezekiel underscores that John writes about here in the Revelation represented the four banners. And the rest of the Bible documents that fact. For instance, here's a picture of the tribe of Judah. Those who camped under the line of the tribe of Judah were Issachar and Zebulun, and they camped on the east side of the tabernacle. Here's a picture of Reuben. Reuben camped on the south side of the tabernacle along with the tribes of Simeon and Gad under his banner. And no doubt it's a man because God records that his first man and his family, Jacob's family, his firstborn, of course, was Reuben. Then there's Ephraim. Ephraim, here's his banner, that of an ox. And Benjamin and Manasseh camped under his banner on the west side of the tabernacle. And the Bible repeatedly describes Ephraim like an ox, a trained heifer that loves to thresh. Here is a picture of Dan. Dan is a picture of an eagle. And of course, Naphtali and Asher camped under the banner of the eagle. And of course, Jacob said, Dan shall judge his people. And repeatedly in Scripture, God will use the eagle as a symbol that swoops down and judges. So Scripture confirms what the Talmud actually writes, that there were four banners that the people camped under. And by the way, I think it's interesting to note, a number of commentaries will bring it out, 
that the four Gospels are also representative of these four banners. For instance, Matthew proves that Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so he goes through by documenting from Abraham that Jesus is indeed Messiah, the one who would come from the tribe of Judah and the family of David to give his life. Mark's gospel pictures Jesus like an ox, as a servant. He came not to serve, Mark will write, to be, but to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Luke he portrays Christ as a man. He underscores his humanity. And so he takes his ancestry, not like Matthew does to Abraham, but all the way back to Adam. And he shows that Jesus is indeed the last Adam. And John's gospel repeatedly describes Jesus like an eagle that judges. And more than any gospel, it underscores that all judgment has been given to the Son. Now remember, the Bible ultimately is all about Jesus. And so God has this tent. God has this tabernacle. And how did this tabernacle come about? Well, listen, it wasn't original with Moses. God specified, I mean, right down to the fabric and every single detail, how this little tabernacle was to be built. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews in the 8th chapter reminds us that the tabernacle in heaven um, and the one on earth were parallels, a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So Hebrews 8, if you were with me in our study of Hebrews years ago, tells us that the true tabernacle in heaven is reflected by the tabernacle that God had them make upon the earth. It's a model, as it were, of the throne of God. Now stay with me. I know we're in deep theology, but you can get it, and we need to get it, and we need to apply our minds to it. Remember how God said they were to camp, north, south, east, and west. That was the configuration that God gave, and it was very carefully specified. The width of their camp could not be larger than that of the Levites. And so if you began to bleed over into the southeast quadrant, you were out of place. If you began to bleed over into the northwest quadrant, you were out of place. You had to camp according to the way God dictated it. And so on this next slide, for instance, you will see that on the east side where the entrance of the tabernacle was, was Judah along with the tribes that camped under his banner, 186,400. Then, as you can see on the next tribe, you had this, the, the banner of a man, of Reuben, 151,450 people. Now, the numbers, when you read of all these different tribes, seem meaningless. But when you put the numbers together under each banner, you get these summaries. You get Ephraim under the banner of a calf, along with its two tri other tribes, 108,100. And then Dan, they're the under the banner of an eagle. Listen, it's not by accident that from heaven's perspective, even when Balaam had King Balak and they're up on a ridge and he is trying to get Balaam to curse Israel, when they look down on the camp, this camp that for nearly 40 years went through the wilderness, every single night, they camped in the pattern of a cross. And the tabernacle within the center was a picture of a cross. You say, well, that's a coincidence. There's no coincidences in Scripture. Every number, every detail is given by the inspiration of God and for a reason. 
Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures. You, you search the Old Testament. I adopted the name of our ministry from this verse. You search the Scriptures. And like the Bereans who are more noble and that they search the Scriptures daily. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, the Old Testament, that testify about me. All the Scripture, including revelation, including every word, every name, every number, Point to the Lord Jesus. Finally, and just quickly, let's think about the praise emanating from the throne. The praise emanating from the throne of God. Three dimensions of this praise are highlighted. First, the span of the praise is given to us in verse 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And one word, what is God like? He is holy. When Isaiah is given a vision, he hears holy, holy, holy. And John in the Revelation hears the same words. Holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. Holy is the Spirit. And listen, if you've been born again, God has asked you to reflect his holy character. And if there's anything that will overwhelm you, that will get your attention when you step into heaven, it will be that God is holy. He is the opposite of us in every word, thought, and deed. He is absolutely perfect. And so the span of praise, affirming his holiness is day and night around the throne. Think about the source of this praise here in verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, these living creatures that exemplify and reflect Christ, here's this angelic host. Look, I love a, a full worship service. When you hear the people of God praising God, well, just imagine the voices emanating thousands upon millions of angels affirming the holiness of God, but not just the angels, but also the redeemed. The 24 elders that are representative of the church will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever ever and ever and will cast their crowns before their throne. When the living creatures praise the Lord, the saints of God represented by these elders will rise from their thrones and they will fall down and they will give their crowns to Christ. You say, I thought we were to wear them on our heads. Not for long. You say, why do they give them to Christ? Because he gave them to them to begin with. He saved them and redeemed them with his own blood. And anything you've ever done, anything I've ever done that's been worth anything worthy of a reward is because you yielded to the Holy Spirit and God did it through you. And in heaven, he will reward you. Crowns are not just for the elders. Throughout the New Testament, there are five crowns that can be given to any child of God who will serve the Lord faithfully. Now, down here, we may try to keep some praises for ourselves, but up there, Jesus will get it all. There'll be no big shots in heaven. Jesus will be the center of heaven. And if you will yield yourself today as a holy and living sacrifice, you will have some crowns to cast at his feet. Now, beyond the span and the source, let's think finally about the sound of praise. The sound of praise at the throne. I love this verse. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. In heaven, the saints will actually shout out loud. Now, you may not like doing it there, but we're going to praise the Lord like we've never done. 
And you may sing a little bit off key here, but there you'll have a redeemed body. Everybody will be in tune. It will be glorious. And notice, worthy. Packed in that word is the word worth. God's worth is worthy of our praise. And they praise him for his works. I mean, just think about what he has done for you. Think about all that he has created. It's not out of the glue into the zoo that became you. It's not two sparks somewhere out and out of space that formed this universe. We will witness tomorrow an eclipse. That's the handiwork of God. We can tell you when the next one is and the next one and the next one. Because God is a God of order and a, a God of design and His eternal attributes and divine nature are seen through all that He has created. We will praise the Lord for you created all things and we will praise Him for His will. You created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. The elders recognize what we will more fully understand someday that God created you for his own pleasure and for you to worship him. We'll study this more. Now, this is a glimpse of glory, just a glimpse. We're going to detail it, or John will for us, by the time we come to the end of the book. But listen, when the church is caught up and the door is opened, will you be there or will you be left for the worst time in human history? Will you be praising the Lord in heaven or will you be down here upon the earth taking the mark of the beast? Will you be giving all praise and glory to the lamb who is upon the throne? Well, it all depends on what you do with that lamb. For what you do with him will determine what God will do with you. You confess him and he will confess you. You deny him and he will deny you for all of eternity and you will have no excuse because he has made a provision for you. Listen, we've got the best news this world will ever hear. And the church of the living God in the 21st century needs to be faithful to carry that word, even this week, looking for opportunities to tell people who will either be everlastingly happy because they confess Jesus as Lord or eternally miserable because they did nothing with him. Holy Father, we thank you today for this chapter of Scripture. It's just a reflection of how awesome you are that no man could have thought this book up. Only you could have written it. And I pray today, Father, for someone who is here, who has never received Jesus as Lord, that today they would turn their lives over to him, that they would trust that his death on the cross and his resurrection is sufficient to save them, that they will not come on the basis of self-merit or good deeds, but as bankrupt sinners casting themselves totally on the Savior who alone can deliver them from the wrath that is to come. Help some dear soul today, wherever they may be, wherever they may be listening, who is uncertain that heaven is their home because they've never rested in what Jesus did. They've never truly believed. Help them to know that you cannot lie, that you promised because of what Jesus did that whoever will call on his name will be saved. Help some boy, some girl, some teenager, some older person say, Jesus, I ask you to save even me. What a glorious picture of a throne room, Father, that you've given us a glimpse of in the future when the church is removed.
And may we be like the elders to whom Jesus said, well done, thy good and faithful servant, such that you gave them crowns that they could cast at Jesus' feet and worship him with. May we be like living and holy sacrifices yielded to you that you might do your work through us and reward us for it in eternity as we praise Jesus. And we ask it in his holy name and for his sake. Amen. To listen again to today's program, A Glimpse of Heaven, part of our study in the book of Revelation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV11. Tomorrow, we begin a look at the Lamb and the Scroll. Join us then as we continue our study of Revelation and search the Scriptures.